0: Well, good morning, church. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to the passage that you heard, we'll read aloud. That's Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. The text that we will be looking at this morning is one of Jesus' most astounding miracles. It's one of three occasions in his earthly ministry where Jesus raises someone from the dead. And of course, with this being an astounding miracle of Jesus, a resurrection of the widow's son from the dead you would probably be expecting that you were well acquainted with this text already. But my guess is that unless you've been attending our Bible for Life class on Luke or a Wednesday night youth Bible study, this resurrection, this miracle account is one that you may not have heard taught in any depth. And this is likely though because this resurrection miracle, it's not very long. There aren't a whole lot of details in it. For example, we're not told the names of anyone in this text. And it happens in the obscure village of Nain, which you probably know nothing about. And this may be leading you to this very question this morning Kevin, why are you preaching on this text? Well, if I've caused you to wonder that at all, then good, I've done my job in this introduction. Because have I got a surprise for you this morning? What we will actually see unfolded in this passage, and with the whole context of the Bible to color in all the depth of detail, Luke's telling of this miracle of Jesus gives us absolute, deep truth that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has a heart of extraordinary compassion for those who are in need, and he has the power to do something about our need. And the crowd's reaction at the end puts on display the very beauty of the very response that we ought to all have in knowing faith by Jesus. Uh, in Jesus that he has loved us and has powerfully saved us. Now, in order to glean as much as possible from this text, let's see how Luke sets the scene in verses 11 through 12. So read those with me. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So Luke at the beginning of verse 11 is bringing us this account in the context of Jesus's early ministry in Galilee. The miracle of the resurrection in this passage occurs within a day or two of Jesus's miracle of healing the servant of the centurion who was on his deathbed, which happened in Capernaum. And Capernaum was Jesus's home base for his earthly ministry. Now, in this passage, you have Jesus traveling with his disciples with a great crowd from Capernaum by foot to the village of Nain. So Nain, have you heard of that before? The town or the village of Nain is about as obscure as it gets. And to a large degree, it has remained in obscurity throughout history. Now, there are some things that we can know about Nain, and we'll get to those in a moment. But right here, let's pause and consider something. Something that's deeply meaningful. So as Luke sets the scene, you have the country's most significantly influential rabbi traveling around. And of course, we as Christians, as true disciples, know him to be the Christ who has come to bear good news of the gospel. So again, Jesus, the most significantly influential teacher, the most well-known person is traveling intentionally to insignificant Nain. But Nain and its people are not insignificant to our Lord. Now, for those of you who have known me for at least five minutes, you probably already know that I'm from Texas. I like to talk about that. I'm proud of being a Texan. I refer to myself as a Texas expat living in North Carolina. But even for those of you that have known me for years you might not know anything about my hometown, where I'm from. I'm from the small West Texas town of Pampa, Texas, a town of about 17,000 people. My hometown has four elementary schools, all named after Texas war heroes. We have one middle school and one high school. Our high school sports team is called the Hustling Harvesters, which tells you that farming is important where I'm from. Our claims to fame are a few tornadoes, a very good boys' basketball team in the 90s, not when I was in school, and we're hometown to a few notable athletes such as Zach Thomas, who played for the Miami Dolphins several years ago. These are all things that I know about my hometown, but very few others know anything at all about Pampa, Texas, and even very few more would know anything about its people. Well, in 2008, Becca and I were newly weds, and we had moved to Wake Forest so that I could pursue a degree at Southeastern Seminary. And after visiting a few area churches, we decided to visit this church, First Baptist in Durham, and we've been here ever since. But you want to know something very interesting about that first Sunday when we were here. So during that time, uh, during the order of service, FBC had a time of meeting and greeting, shaking people's hands giving hugs, introducing yourself, and things like that right in the middle of the service. And Becca and I were sitting on this side behind where the college students would be. And a young couple turns around to meet us. And the wife looked really familiar to me right away. And here's why. Her name was Jenny Shepard. And I knew her as Jenny Fothery from Pampa, Texas, the class of 2000. And I was from the class of 2001. So she and her husband were our first people that we met here at this church. 1,500 miles away from home. They were the first to tell us about FBC. The first to invite us to lunch afterwards. And you know that we went to go eat some Texas barbecue at the Q Shack. Now you might think that that's cool and it is cool. But can I tell you something brothers and sisters? God doesn't operate by coincidence. He works in absolute meticulous sovereignty. He does these kinds of things again and again. If nothing else, like we don't always know why He's doing something like that, but if nothing else, to let us know that He loves us. He knows where we're at. He cares for us, that He is there with us. So Jesus knows about the people and cares about the people at First Baptist Church in Durham. He knows and cares about the people from Pampa, Texas. And he knows and cares about the people at Nain. Now, like I said, there are some things that we can know about Nain, but not a lot. So the ancient village of Nain, it was located to the west of the Sea of Galilee. So still in Galilee, but close to Samaria, about six miles southeast of Nazareth at the foot of Mount Morah. The word Nain means pleasant, which is fitting since it was located in the territory of the tribe of Issachar about which Jacob said to his son in Genesis 49:15, he saw a resting place that was good and that the land was pleasant. But all that remains of ancient Nain are tombs that are cut into the hill of Mount Morah. Again, insignificant, but not to Jesus. So the text says that Jesus is traveling down to the town of Nain. He's together with his disciples and also with a great crowd following him. Probably more than the population of Nain. We don't really know how many were in the great crowd at this point. But it very well could have been in the hundreds or even in the thousands. And so Jesus quite literally, for lack of a better word, he's famous at this point. He's the most well-known person in Galilee. And the text says in verse 12 that as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who died was being carried out. The only son of his mother... And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So I'm sure that you can picture it. And Jesus and this great crowd is approaching the small village of Nain. The plan will be to enter in through the city gate. So towns and cities during Jesus' day were surrounded by walls for security. And a town the size of Nain would have only had one gate. Larger cities like Jerusalem would have multiple gates. And that gate area would be the main place for the villagers to have meetings, to do business. People that are traveling to Nain would do business there at the gate. The marketplace would likely have been just inside of the gate. And so as Jesus and his disciples are coming with the crowd near the gate, a sight to be seen, no doubt, our attention is drawn instead away from them to a funeral march. Our attention is drawn to the sight of a dead young man being carried out to be buried. And there is a crowd centered around the young man's mother who was also a widow who had just lost her only son. So the language that Luke is using here and pointing out that the man was her only son tells us about the heartache that must be going along with what it should, uh, should, what is going on that would lead us to value the significance The fact that this woman has lost her only son. Now remember what transpires next. Jesus' compassion for the widow in her loss leads him to raise the young man from death to life. And this will result in a remarkable and joyful restoration. And then remember also that God, the Father, sent his only son into the world to die for sinners. He is truly able to sympathize with the pain and the weakness that this widow feels in her loss. And then you and I, we live just as the widow did in a hurting world, one that's afflicted, one that's troubled, one that's under the weight of sin and the fall. Jesus' compassion and his power to do something about our condition is the only way that we may be restored to joy. And it's not just a fleeting kind of joy, but an everlasting joy. So this is no mere happenstance that Jesus is drawing near to the gate of Nain at the very moment that the widow is going out to bury her dead son. This is the very reason why Jesus came to Nain. He came to see this woman and to restore her joy by receiving her son back. So that's the scene and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people who were there to watch it. And the biggest takeaway that we will have in this passage is that Jesus is a Savior who cares deeply for those in need. And he's able to powerfully meet their need. So look with me now at verses 13 through 15. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So these three verses are magnificent. There are little details in each one that put on display the heart that Jesus has for people in need. So if you can picture it, as Jesus draws near to the city gate, he sees the bereaved widow, along with the bier. And the mourners, the crowd that's going along with them, there would have been musicians and friends and family there as well. But notice what happens when Jesus sees the widow. Luke gives us insight into Jesus' care for this woman, that he had compassion on her. Now the Bible uses at times interesting language to speak of our feelings or who we are. So the heart, for example, speaks of our identity, our personhood. The mind, of course, is important, and it speaks to, like, what we believe. And for affections and feelings, it it mentions the gut or the bowels. And to bring that over into English, I think that one way to understand that is that Jesus has this deep down feeling of affection for this widowed, childless woman. His heart is going out to her. And this compassion is a hallmark of who Jesus is. Jesus is compassionate. Of course, he's other things, but he is compassionate. He's loving. He's gentle. And it is his compassion that is so often seen to lead him to act on behalf of people. This woman is weeping. The Greek word speaks to the fact that she is crying profusely. And Jesus had compassion on her, he was sympathetic toward the way she felt. So have you ever felt this kind of weakness, this kind of distress that this woman is feeling, or anything like it? Have you ever felt lost? Have you ever felt without hope? Have you ever felt like God is distant? Jesus, when he sees this woman in the midst of her desperate loss and in her great need, he sympathizes with her, and then he speaks directly to her. Notice Jesus' first words to the woman at the end of verse 13. Verse 13. He says, Do not weep. Don't cry anymore. And you can perhaps imagine the surprise that this woman might have felt. What do you mean, don't weep? How could I not weep? What is there not to weep about? My son is dead. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Before we move off of verse 13, speaking of Jesus' compassion, There's another remarkable characteristic of the very personal, very compassionate sympathy that Jesus shows, and that's in verse 14. And that is what he does immediately after speaking the words, do not weep, to this woman. He reaches out to the coffin or to the beer, which is probably more like an open casket or like a stretcher, and then he touches it. And guess what? That would have immediately made Jesus ceremonially or religiously unclean. And yes, of course, death is a normal part of life. And so when someone dies, there would have to be somebody around to handle the dead body to prepare it for burial. And those who would have handled the body would have become ceremonially unclean for a period of time according to God's law in Numbers 19. And I want you to see here the compassion of Jesus Those who did not have to touch or handle the body, they would be careful not to do so. They would be careful not to get close. So think about it similarly to being around someone who's sick with a highly contagious virus like a stomach bug. No one wants to be near that, right? But someone may need to be near that sick person to help them. Others might be willing to support the sick person by going to get groceries, but they leave it on the doorstep and knock and run away. They would keep their distance. They wouldn't be sure not to, keep, uh, to come too close. They would be especially careful not to touch. But it's always somebody that's closest to, that really loves that person, that would be there to care for that sick person. Like a mom who cares for their child. And they're willing to blow past all of those cautions in order to care for their sick little one. Well, that's how Jesus is here. He blows through all of that, and he touches the beer. And everyone stops when he does that. They're all watching Jesus, standing still. And then Jesus does this. He speaks help to the young man who had died. And that help comes from Jesus' powerful word. He says, young man, a dead man, by the way, young man, I say to you, arise. So as with many of Jesus' miracles, there can be two important components. Number one, he has a willingness to touch or be touched by those in need, which shows his compassion. And number two, the power of his word to restore, so power. So you have compassion and power, sympathy and the ability to do something about the problem. And we need to understand this for ourselves, brothers and sisters. This must be a very personal reality for us all. In order for us to have a Savior, He must be compassionate and able to help. So why both? Well, if you were compassionate but unable to help, then He would have a wonderful heart, but He would have no ability to save you. And of course, if He had all power but no compassion, He would not be moved to do anything about your condition. But in Jesus, we get both. And I tell you, it's put on display time and time again in the Gospels so that we might know that He is the only Savior. And this is very important. There is an abundance of weeping that Jesus encounters during His earthly ministry. People in pain, people mourning. Jesus Himself even wept over the death of His friend Lazarus. Jesus wept over the lostness of Jerusalem. He was able to sympathize with us in his incarnation at every point, including those things that would bring us to tears. But over and over again, as Jesus encountered weeping, he was moved to do something about it. His sovereign plan for death, mourning, crying, and pain was to put those things to an end forever. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Luke 6, 21. The weeping will end. Joy will come. Why? Because that's what's in store in the future for those who are in Christ. And again and again, Jesus gives us foretastes of this truth to come through his miracles. So let me give you five quick examples from the Gospels that expressly tell us of Jesus's compassion leading him to powerfully act for people to help. So, example number one, it comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 36. It says, And Jesus went through all, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, so Christ is, com, has compassion on his helpless sheep. So he helps them by being their good shepherd. Example number two. This comes from Matthew fourteen fourteen. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus, in that account, sees a crowd. He's filled with compassion, and he heals them as the great physician, Pointing to a reality that to come that by his love and by his power, the age to come will have no sickness, will have no decay, only sustained life. Example number three. This comes from Matthew 15. Then Jesus called his disciples to, the, to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So this here, Jesus' compassion, his love for the people, led him to the feeding of the 4,000. And of course, this points to a greater reality, that Jesus will be an eternal provider for his people, that he will be the bread of life, pointing to the heavenly fulfillment of the beatitude, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied, also in Luke 6, 21. Example number four. This comes from the passage about the healing of a boy with an unclean spirit in Mark chapter 9. But Jesus, when he encounters the father of the boy, he asks, How long has this been happening to him? And the father said, From childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can? All things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and he took the boy by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. So Jesus here is both the armor and the offensive weaponry against the evil one. And with him, all things are possible. He has compassion and he's able to do something about it. Or how about Luke chapter 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, this is example number five. After the prodigal son had left his father, desiring to live in sin rather than to live in his father's house, and after he had squandered his father's possessions that he received, and he was living in such desperation as to be feeding together with pigs, the son, it says, came to his right mind, and he determined that he would try to return home. But the question was lingering, would his father receive him? Now, you know he would. So Luke 15 20 says that he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced them and kissed him. For my son was dead, he said, and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So Jesus here points us to the heart and the authority of the father which is of the same character as the heart and authority of the Son. They are in unity on this. The Father loves His wandering children, and if they will come to Him, He will feel compassion, and He will run to embrace each one, welcoming them back into His house with celebration. So brothers and sisters, I could actually give you many more examples of this, at least five more, of compassion plus power in the person of Jesus directed toward determining to help people. But if we covered them all, we wouldn't have time for the crowd's response or to even covering this miracle itself. So let's take a moment to look at what Jesus does here in Luke 7 in the raising of this young man to life. So in the case of this miracle in Luke 7, Jesus' compassion and his power resulted in the restoration of life to someone who was dead. This man could do nothing about his condition. And this is hugely significant. Raising the dead is no small feat. All the other miracles that Jesus did seem to point in one way or another to this dreaded enemy of death that is appointed to us all, that seems to haunt us all. And there's much that the Bible has to say about death, from it being the penalty for our sin that we deserve, both in Adam and in our own lives, to the fact that as Christians we have hope that death's purpose has been overturned instead to serve the purposes of Christ in advancing the gospel and uniting us with Christ forever in heaven. And we won't go into detail of those matters here, but there is a particular truth about death that we feel, I think each of us feel personally, when a loved one dies. When we're trying to, uh, to comfort someone who is grieved in the same way uh, that, that you may have already done in your life. To comfort a friend, to comfort parents at the loss of a loved one. Now, we as Christians, of course, grieve as people who have hope. First Thessalonians 4.13. We do have hope, but we still grieve, don't we? And we do so in part because of the pain that death brings to moms and dads, to friends and family to churches, to communities, that there's this great sense of loss that death has caused. And Jesus has compassion on those who are grieving and mourning over death. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. To the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. So, Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your every weakness your weakness under temptation, your weakness in your struggles with sin, your weakness in your anxiety, your weakness in your troubles, your weakness in your sickness and in your afflictions. Weakness in your weeping, and weakness even in death. In all of these and more, Jesus has a heart of compassion for his people, and he is able to help. And the links to which the Lord would move heaven and earth to save his people are astounding. And the end to which this miracle is pointing is this, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. He demonstrates it in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. So it is the love of our God coupled together with his power to save that results in our eternal salvation. And that old enemy death is set square in the sights of God's power to put it to an end. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And that happens through our compassionate and powerful Savior who says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this is where we're headed, brothers and sisters, to a reunion with our Savior Who will make all things new and who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, For the former things will have passed away. Revelation 21, 4. To quote D.L. Moody, death may be the king of terrors, but Christ is the king of kings. Amen. Death may be the king of terrors, but Christ is the king of kings. So Jesus, seeing all of the mourning at Nain and the deep distress and the heartache of this dead young man's mother, he reaches out with his hand and he tells the young man to arise. And before the very eyes of the crowd, and before our eyes of faith as we read this account, the man is raised from the dead, from going to his burial to the grave to being given back to his mother's embrace. And what a joyful turnabout. What an amazing moment. Do not cry, dear woman. Why? Here's why. Jesus is this woman's fountain of newfound joy. And until that moment, the crowd didn't really know who was visiting him. But we knew all along. The one visiting the little village of Nain is Jesus, God the Son. Jesus, the one who is the Word of God, who made everything and holds everything together. Jesus, the one through whom all things were made, that had been made, all this young man and, his wom- and this mother ever needed at this moment was for Jesus to come to them, for Jesus to be their Savior. For he is a Savior with a compassionate heart and an ability to do something about their need. And the very same truth is what the Bible says to us and for us. Everything we need is Jesus. Everything we need is found in him. It's why this miracle is recorded in the scriptures. It really happened, but it was written down that we might believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God sent into the world to save us from our sins and from the punishment for our sins that would follow. It was written down for people like you and me. Reading this passage today, because Jesus' heart of compassion and his power to save goes far beyond the three examples of resurrections in the New Testament. He intends to demonstrate His affection for people in need of His power and in need of His compassion to help a countless multitude that will one day be gathered before the throne of heaven full of joy. So what would be your reaction if you were there seeing Jesus do this miracle? And though we weren't there, uh, we get a Bible's eye view of the reaction of those who were there. So look with me at verses 16 and 17 says fear seized them all and they glorified God saying the great prophet has arisen among us God has visited his people and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country so in these verses the crowd of onlookers responds to what they see with three successive actions number 1 they were awestruck number 2 they praised God and number 3 they spread the word about Jesus So let's consider all three. First, the text says that fear seized them all. Fear seized them all. Now you might think, why were they filled with fear at being in the presence of such a welcoming and compassionate healer? And of course, you would be right to say that we should feel remarkably loved and welcome to draw close to Jesus upon his invitation for us to come to him. Jesus, as we've seen, is regularly and consistently putting his heart on display for the people. He's constantly drawing in those who desire um, him and those he desires to show mercy and compassion to. But we should also have an appropriate sense of fear. Why? It's because of his power. Because of his power. It's the kind of power that struck this crowd with a sense of fear and awe. They were seized by it, probably because until that very moment, they had no idea about who this man was that they were curious about. And we, like I'm sure many in this crowd, can often be too casual about Jesus. We can easily neglect to come to Jesus knowing that he is God. He's the one that we come to worship Sunday after Sunday, That in Christ's hands are the right and the power to give life, but also to take it away. That in his hands are the right and the power to save souls, but also to condemn us as judge. He, this man Jesus, is our maker. He is the one who gave us our breath of life. And now that this crowd has seen Jesus' true nature through the veil of his earthly body, his physical body they realized that they were standing in the presence of someone other than who they thought they were with. Relatedly, Luke helps us out. He says uh, that Jesus is Lord back in verse 13. It should be noted that when Luke calls him that, that Jesus intends for us to know that he's speaking of the Son of God. But that's usually not the case uh, when the crowd calls Jesus Lord. Instead, they have in mind something more like a respectful calling of Jesus, Sir... Now, the crowd's reaction in verse 16 to what Jesus has done is to make known that they now know that Jesus isn't merely some sir, a mere man. He is the one that God has sent. And this leads them to their next response. They were first filled with fear and awe, and then they praise or glorify God for what they've just witnessed. So they say two things a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So the crowds are now praising God. But why say a great prophet has arisen among us? Why say this after a resurrection miracle? Well, if you remember back in Israel's history, there were two others who raised someone from the dead in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. Their response to this miracle makes something clear, that they know that they have witnessed something that only God could do. Jesus, therefore, is no ordinary man. He has come in the spirit of one like Elijah, able to raise the dead, and in fact, if you want to be encouraged this morning by the God-breathed Scriptures, I'd encourage you to read the account of the raising of the widow's son at Zarephath by Elijah in one Corinthians, uh, 1 Kings seventeen, and count how many remarkable similarities there are between that one and this resurrection at Nain. Now, Jesus is no ordinary man. Actually, he's like Elijah. Actually, Elijah. And what he did was ultimately to point to someone greater than himself. And that one is Jesus. In fact, that's the conclusion of the crowd. They say God has visited his people. He must be specially visiting us right now. So blessed be the name of the Lord God of Israel. So the crowd is filled with awe. And they are glorifying God by speaking words of praise to God. Directing their awe toward God. And magnifying the glory of God by speaking these things toward one another. And then they had one more thing to do in response. They spread the news about Jesus, the good news. The final natural part of the reaction of the crowd to this miracle was to spread a report about Jesus to the surrounding country. So they spread the good news, the great thing that God has done in their midst. And essentially, this is what we all as Christians should do as well. We are called, brothers and sisters, to go and tell everyone and anyone about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, our strong and kind Savior. For what God has done in us, He can do in others still. So for application this morning, first I want to say, if you're here this morning and you know that you're not a Christian, know this morning that Jesus can save you. So come to Him. Know this morning that He will have compassion toward all who call on Him in their need. He will meet your greatest need, which is your need for salvation, your need for your forgiveness of sin. And he will save you eternally for life by reconciling you with God. If you would like to follow Christ this morning, and that's you, I'd love to talk with you about that after the service. And to all of you who are in Christ this morning, you already know him. You know that he is the one who had compassion on you and who has powerfully saved you. He sought you out just as he sought out this widow's uh, son at Nain and the widow. Jesus has saved you. Our response must be a life full of awe for who Jesus is, leading to our worship and fueling our mission to spread the message about Jesus to a world that's in great need. So let's spread the news. Let's pray together. And Father, we thank you so much for the kind heart of your son, Jesus Christ, that he is compassionate and that he is full of power for our salvation. We thank you that in Christ alone we can have a Savior. And Father, today we pray that you would continue to grow us all in the knowledge that by faith we have a Savior who is both strong and kind, that he is compassionate and able to help. And we pray that you would lead us to respond even now with a sense of awe, in worship, and that we would spread the news about Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.